I'd like to welcome uh, Katrin Gibson. really like a official uh, biographic introduction but still I thought it, it's good to share like uh, nearly or almost monumental books series of books that you have been publishing so uh, so like 96 you published the book together with uh, Julie Gibson um, the end of capitalism as we knew <laughs> and 10 years after you published a uh, post-capitalist politics and just two years ago, or now three years ago, 2013, that you published this book together with the two other colleagues. That's right. Yeah. So that's really what I'm going to be talking about, this book, Take Back the Economy, an ethical guide for transforming our communities. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to come and present to you at Casco. I've had a long relationship, or at least from since 2012, with people at Casco, and... Uh, it was great to be involved in the, some way in the Grand Domestic Revolution project and so now to be also involved in this most recent one, it's a, it's a great privilege and it was very fortuitous that we met in summer at the Bauhaus uh, and I realised that I'd be in Germany here and I could actually zip over to Utrecht to come and talk to you. So it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, and what I thought I'd do is just, um, you know, I need to keep the time in my mind talk a little bit about the kind of project of Rethinking Economy that Julie Graham and I uh, embarked on really um, as graduate students many years ago. Julie and I published under the name J.K. Gibson Graham for many years and I still publish under that name um, but she sadly died in 2010 so um, I'm continuing on in that kind of in the work that we do and our two of our very long-standing graduate students, Stephen Healy and Jenny Cameron, have combined with us to write this last latest book. Um, so the, the project of Rethinking Economy, I guess, is partly reflected in this Turkish translation of The End of Capitalism. Um, you know, it was a project of trying to uh, attack the kind of ways in which the representations of capitalism were styming a politics of alternatives or a politics of transformation. And um, in this version of the book, the original book published in 96 with um, Blackwell's had Sisyphus rolling a stone up a hill. It was very dour and looked like part of the German Republic's some sort of political party. It was all black and red and so on. But this is much more vibrant and it shows there the sort of machinic capitalism and Julian I as the little David's trying to lodge our, our stones at this, um, at this monster. And of course the monster's also gobbling up the world, not just gobbling up um, individuals. So I guess our work, it was really about challenging what we saw as these representations of capitalism that always proposed that it was a, a system of encompassing power, very generalizable dynamics and enlarged space, spaces of agency um, within which communities always had to kind of cower and, um, uh, and kowtow, really. So our work has been to kind of um, challenge that representation but also start to develop new ways of thinking about how to reframe the economy and take it back for people and the planet, to make an economy be what it's supposed to be, which is a way of surviving. Um, so... We thought originally when we, were, we decided to write um, Take Back the Economy that it would be a kind of popular version 
of this um, sequel to The End of Capitalism, the post-capitalist politics that Julie and I published in 2006. Um, and in some ways it is, but in some ways it's more than that. So in a post-capitalist politics, we talked about three different kinds of politics that we felt were needed to um, in, in enabled us to start to think differently about the economy. One was to have a new language of economy and open up spaces for different imaginations beyond a kind of capitalist system. Another was to think about the politics of the subject and how do we start to become um, subjects of a different kind of economy rather than feeling always that we can only occupy the economic subject positions that are endowed by a capitalist system. And largely, how can you think about a politics of collective action in a new way to try and build different kinds of economies? So these were the kind of arguments um, and examples of our own action research and other kinds of work that we um, incorporated into a post-capitalist politics. But what happened by the writing, you know, quite a few years later, this more popular book, was that, of course, we had been influenced by a lot of new trends and thinking in um, the social sciences and in environmental humanities and the whole issues of environmental crisis and so on. So um, the, the, the work in this, in this book, even though it's presented in a much more kind of accessible style, is really moving on from um, those other books. So in this book, we try and talk about not just a language of a diverse economy, which I'll explain in a minute, but language of, a co of community economy concerns. Um, we think about not just creating new human subjects, um, but also the idea that we could think about more than human subjects, subjects that uh, are maybe multi-species and so on. And lastly, we think about collective action not just as something that is... Uh, uh, acted by conscious human interventions, but also thinking about collective action as, in some ways, enrolling assemblages of socio-technical relationships. So here, obviously, influenced by some of the work in material semiotics and other things that have, uh, uh, we're trying to develop into the kind of politics we're interested in developing. So um, the first strategy that I think we've always employed in our work uh, is, a, is a policy or a, a sort of strategy of reframing. And the first chapter of uh, Take Back the Economy is really um, introducing that idea of reframing the economy. Do we see it as a capitalist economy or do we see it as a diverse economy in which there are capitalist practices that coexist with many other practices? So you know, the old figure ground shift that we are all familiar with as artists and represent representers is an important one, we think, for thinking about how it is that economic discourse has focused on certain things and left out of the picture other things. And in our work, we, you know, enrolled this vision of the iceberg many years ago to mainly using it in the context of community action research to try and help people see themselves as part of an economy, even if they weren't a wage labourer or producing commodities in a market or involved in a capitalist enterprise. So our view is that you know, so much of what economic discourse focuses upon is this tip of the iceberg and underneath it are all the different activities and practices and transactions and ways of um, living together that are in a kind of chaotic uh, assemblage really uh, but has been, have been, it's been the focus of, of study by 
particular anthropologists and uh, economic sociologists and so on, but rarely does it enter into the sense of, of how we might think about an economy. So this vision of an iceberg is a very kind of just um, a simple representation that helps people see themselves both as having multiple economic subjects, positions. They could be working as a wage labourer, but they could also be working as a caring labourer or as a volunteer, having multiple economic subjectivities. Um, and it's been used in lots of different contexts. This is another vision of the diverse economy or the, this iceberg economy that was drawn by some artists um, as a kind of act of reciprocity. I, had, I was to write a uh, short um, essay for the, an, an, another, the trade show. It was actually another exhibition by artists around economic practices and they redrew the, um, redrew the iceberg for me <laughs> in that kind of vision. Um, but it's also been used in work I've done in the Pacific with Melanesian communities to kind of document the different, all the different activities that actually keep them alive, which are largely these ones underneath the waterline. And, and here we used an image of a coconut floating rather than an iceberg. It didn't seem that relevant in the Pacific context. <laughs> um, and um, more recently, another, the same artist that was involved in the trade show, um, uh, Catherine Byrne, has used um, a, a kind of version of the iceberg. It's called the drinks cabinet. <laughs> She's got the, the, uh, the kind of marketed drinks at the top and all the different kind of practices of um, uh, swapping and producer co-ops and volunteering and so on underneath as you open up the cabinet. And she's used it in this project she's been doing uh, in East London with um, communities that used to all go down uh, in the summer to harvest hops, the working class communities of London. And now they're doing this kind of similar trips and then coming back and setting up community drinks making enterprises. So I just thought I'd give you a, a sense of how that image um, has travelled in lots of different ways because it is a very simple way of grasping that there's more to the economy than uh, this sort of, these set of capitalist relationships. Um, and I guess the other um, thing that really we're trying to challenge is the idea that the only economic subject positions or identities are ones that are endowed by this kind of a, a, a sense of a, of a capitalist economy where, where workers, where employees, where our motivations are somehow unidirectional to get higher wages. We could be business owners um, in terms of um, enterprise where our, our motivations are to get more profits. We can be Consumers, where our motivations are to get cheaper goods. Um, property owners, where again we want to get higher returns from private property. And we can be investors, where we want greater returns from financial investment. So there's a very kind of limited set of uh, economic subject positions and motivations that are seen to be associated with a kind of machinic vision uh, or limited vision of the economy. So um, in our book, this new book, Take Back the Economy, we, we kind of were writing it with the idea that groups of people might read it. Um, students, teachers, communities, congregations, unions, associations, groups of artists like you at Casco, that the book would be something to read and think about and use as a way of starting to act together in different ways. So this unusual business... Um, study group and, and process is, a, is an ideal one, I think, for um, the kind of, this is the kind of audience, I suppose, that we are really trying to target in this book. 
So, in a sense, the, the book is trying to provoke uh, what we'll call ethical action. Um, it's informed by a range of theories, obviously uh, anti-essentialist political economy, um, theories of performativity that have come out of uh, feminist work, um, and performation that comes out of the kind of uh, economics uh, and of the science and technology studies people, the new materialism. Um, and we've also employed a mix of representational and non-representational strategies. But all in all, the book is written in a very accessible style where those kind of theories are informing the, informing the analysis, but um, abstract theoretical language isn't really used. So the other important thing to say is that the book doesn't lay down a blueprint. Um, it sets up thinking practices or, or techniques for imagining and enacting different economies. Um, and they might be seen as post-capitalist economies or more than capitalist or communist economies. How we name it, I guess, is something that is still evolving. And I think there are many kind of blueprint projects around at the moment, particularly on, on the kind of left and the alternative left, the, the next system and all these kinds of thinking, which I think I have a, we have a relationship to. But this book is quite different in the sense that it's not proposing a pathway. It's proposing some techniques for having discussions in new ways and then trying to think about um, what kind of action is possible in the context in which you're situated. So I want to just um, present, I guess, some of these techniques. And um, I've already, uh, I I've just introduced the idea of reframing. And I'll go do that a little bit more and then um, go on to talk about one particular, the techniques that we've used to start talk about, talking about commoning, because I know all of you are pretty interested in, in that. As, I, saw, as I, I was saying, we're interested in reframing the idea of these very kind of basic um, concepts, work, business, uh, markets, property and finance. And the way in which we reframe them is to start to recenter the questions around work on what we'll call um, ethical kind of issues, surviving well, distributing surplus, encountering others, commoning and investing in futures. So um, if we start to um, unpack the diverse economy or a representation of a diverse economy, I've used these kind of columns, which is really a way of just organising um, all those chaotic activities that you saw under the waterline in those, um, you know, the iceberg and the coconut and so on. So we can look at the different ways that people work or labour. And wage labour is obviously one of them. And within that, there's many different contexts. And, and, and we could also diversify wage labour. Um, uh, I won't do it right at the moment. But we can also think about the alternative ways in which people work for money and are paid. As self-employed workers, um, they are remunerated sometimes through reciprocity. So not through a monetary relationship, but through reciprocity. Um, sometimes paid in kind or work for welfare kind of work where the state pays a certain payment. And there's, of course, there's all the ways in which we work and for, un, for no monetary reward in housework, self-provisioning, volunteering. Of course, slaves work for no, um, no remuneration except for survival, I suppose. And so that's why I guess um, we're trying to recenter the notion of why do we work? Well, we work to survive. And how do we survive well is the question. How can we live together well with other humans and non-humans? And what kind of ethical dynamics could... Um, could we work on to try and, um, and try and work better and work differently? Um, similarly, when we think about business or enterprise, we can, you know, a lot of the focus is on capitalist business. 
But if we look at the diverse economy, we could look at all the different ways that there, we, we might, call, we might um, talk about alternative capitalist enterprises where there's at least some other kind of um, consideration other than pure profit that is determining how the business runs, whether it's state-owned, it could be socially responsible and allocating funds to some kind of social purpose or environmental purpose. And, of course, there's not-for-profits that um, are supposedly not accruing, accumulating private, uh, privately. But then, of course, there's all the other kind of non-capitalist enterprises that have very different kinds of dynamics, such as worker cooperatives, sole employment, sole proprietorship, uh, like family businesses, community enterprise, uh, feudal and slave businesses. But the big question we're trying to focus on is business is a way of generating wealth and generating surplus. How is it that we generate and distribute to society's surplus? And um, how might we start to do that in different ways? So um, when we come to transactions or markets, we can think of the ways in which we interact with each other in order to produce uh, or access the goods and services we need to live. Uh, and a lot of that happens through formal markets, but a lot of it also happens through alternative markets, whether fair trade, very underground markets, barter, alternative currencies. And of course, all the non-market transactions that are very key to living, all the household sharing, um, gift giving, relationships with nature in terms of accessing uh, hunting and fishing and so on, gleaning, theft and poaching. But really what we're trying to focus on in terms of a community economy is these encounters. How do we encounter others in the process of surviving well in responsible ways and caring ways? And, you know, clearly the market is a way of doing it efficiently, efficiently but in a cold way, in a way that you rarely connect with who it is that has made those goods and services that you're accessing. Um, and then when it comes to property, uh, we could look at all the different kinds of property that coexist, including obviously private property, but then all sorts of forms of alternative private property, such as customary property or, or state-managed assets, community-managed resources. And then all the forms um, of, well, of, of resources or property that are open access, such as the, our atmosphere, international waters, intellectual property. So I'm going to talk about this a bit more in a, in a minute, but really the question we're trying to focus then on is how do we share and uh, what sustains us now and into the future and how do we have a different relationship or how do we access new relationships to what, have been, what has been called property. And lastly then we could think about finance um, and all the different kinds of ways in which finance is... Um, is administered or is, is collected in mainstream banks and financial institutions, but in all sorts of alternative market forms of financial institution, and all the ways in which, I guess, um, you know, in investments and finance are, are, are transacted or are, are organised through non-market means, such as sweat equity, family lending, donations and so on. So here the question is, why do we, why do we save? Why do we invest? Um, and how do we invest our wealth so that we and all other species continue to have a life on this planet? So I'm trying to kind of um, show how um, the diverse economy framing helps us to um, start to shift our conception of what are the dynamics that an economy is, um, is structured by. And do we have to see an economy as only structured by the kind of dynamics of capitalism or can we see ourselves as intervening with kind of ethically oriented dynamics and what might they be? 
When we try to represent the economy as a diverse economy, I don't want to suggest that uh, we can ignore all the activities in the top cell of these columns, all the forms of you know, wage labour, capitalist enterprise and so on. But what I'm doing is just inviting us to explore the complex interactions that happen within diverse economies and to experiment with different development pathways that are oriented directly to the growth of well-being rather than thinking about well-being as something that has to fall out via the kind of circuitous route of investment growth and trickle-down effects, which is the way it's often conceptualised. So these are the kind of concerns, surviving well together, distributing surplus, um, encountering others, commoning, investing in futures, and obviously consuming sustainably, which cuts across all the other kinds of um, community economy concerns. So the kind of strategies and techniques that we've used um, really are first to diversify the economy in terms of those different columns, um, to start to reframe issues in terms of community economy concerns, the ones I just mentioned, and then to start to explore our interdependence with each other, with people uh, at a distance, um, and with Earth others, with our environments, with other species. And then, in the process of exploring interdependence, identifying the dilemmas um, and the pot potential collective actions that we might take uh, in order to um, honour that interdependence and, um, I guess, build a different kind of world. So the term community economy for us is a kind of um, interesting uh, reconceptualization of the space of economy as a space of decision. But for us, the community economy is a space of social interdependency and self-formation. It's not a blueprint. It's an unmapped and uns an uncertain terrain that calls forth exploratory conversation and political and ethical acts of decision. So really, the techniques I'm, I'm trying to work with are ones that help us have those conversations. And, you know, unfinished business, or un sorry, not unfinished, I keep calling it that, unusual business, <laughs> it's also unfinished, is an obvious, a, a, per a perfect place to have those kinds of conversations. <laughs> okay, so what kind of tools might we use then um, to, um, to help with those kinds of conversations? Um, yeah, the other, just the other thing to say is that I, the idea of building community economies involves making those interdependencies visible, which is partly what doing the diverse economy does. It shows you how there are all these activities that are actually interrelated. Um, it also helps us to think about negotiating just outcomes, even if they're going to be temporarily just, that try to recognise and account for di our difference and our otherness. So it's a kind of, the notion of a community economy is a kind of provisional ontology uh, premised on an undoing of any known way of a community of being, um, of common being. So even though the term community is a problematic one where people think they know who the community is or it's tied in often, you know, it has historically been tied in with all sorts of politics that <coughs> seems to know who the community is. It's us, not them. This idea, we're really taking the idea of... Um, being in common as an opening to actually explore what is our common being. And that's always going to be different. It's always going to be situational and contextual. So we're not trying to build a kind of vision of a, a cloying uh, community of sameness. We're really using this term to say let's open up the economy as a space where we have to negotiate and discuss these questions of interdependence. 
So we can't assume that there's any kind of known collectivity. Um, we have to continually re-perform this ethical moment where interdependence is negotiated and its layout is provisionally settled. So this is this idea of a space of indeterminacy. Okay, so um, as I said, the, the first step for us is doing this inventory of diversity and then starting to think about what are, what are kind of metrics of our interdependence. How can we try and track independence and try and represent them in certain ways? I mean, clearly the metrics that we have to understand economies as we know them are a certain set of metrics that have led that lead to certain kinds of activities. You know, our input-output matrices, our, our GDP, all these kind of matrices that are metrics that are very crucial to how we understand what economies are. Well, how do we start to develop different metrics and different ways of thinking about interactions, um, interdependencies? And you know, the first step, as I said, is this kind of um, identifying diversity, and that can be done in all different dimensions. But what we've done in the book is identify lots of other kinds of techniques for starting to look at um, uh, interdependence, for instance, um, the 24-hour clock and the different kinds of labour we perform in 24 hours, how that leads to uh, forms of well-being, how that leads then to particular kind or is connected to particular kinds of ecological footprints. So we kind of ask, how is our own surviving well through doing this kind of portfolio of work, what sort of well-being is it producing for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, but also for our earth community? You know, and so many of us, as we are recognising, are working intensively and destroying the planet at the same time. And there's something kind of fundamentally problematic there. Uh, and how we, how we think about different ways of doing this, and I think what we're going to hear from Philip later on of a, a, a basic income kind of payment is a very different way of starting to think about how do we survive well and, and free up time for other kinds of activities. There's many strategies that might fall out of this kind of understanding. Um, and I haven't got time to go through all the different kinds of um, techniques that we discuss in the book uh, around encountering others and um, so on. I just thought I'd just give you a glimmer of them, the kind of accounting we might do on, in, in enterprises in terms of you know, where are the decision flashpoints to do with survival payments and surplus, um, surplus extraction and distribution. And we end the book with a kind of community economy return on investment, um, which tries to put a lot of these things together. But as I said, I haven't got time to go into that. So what I thought I'd do is just do one um, one dimension, the property dimension, in a bit more detail in order to try and um, explain or show why these little kind of hokey little techniques <laughs> might be helpful. Okay, so um, I'll turn then to a more specific discussion of taking back property and trying to cultivate ethical practices around property and commoning. So as I um, already pointed out, you know, there are kind of, we could, this is just an incomplete list of different ways of conceptualising um, uh, property relations. Um, and it's interesting, I think, the Commons has got a lot of attention at the moment by um, particularly leftists of all kinds. Um, and, uh, and of course, it's a, it's a, very, it's a very productive concept. But one, one quote that was interesting to, um, to myself and our, my co-authors most recently is this quote by Massimo De Angelis and David Harvey, not the geographer David Harvey, but another one, 
talking about that in spite of capitalist strategies to deploy a commons fix to its problems, um, there's a lot of, influence, lot of interest in the ways that you know, commons are enclosed and so on and, and feed into capitalist development. They say commons may well be part of a different historical trajectory. So the idea that commons and commoning might have a different historical trajectory, one that isn't tied into a narrative of enclosure and capitalist accumulation, is a kind of radical suggestion, especially today when scholars are increasingly positioning the commons as a counterpoint to capital, um, you know, subsumed within capital, as ca capital enclosed by capital, co-opted by capital. And, and I know that these are concerns that many of you have too, um, that these kinds of commoning practices can easily be seen as just part and parcel of the operations of a, a more sophisticated or um, uh, capitalism. But I think um, our work is to sort of start a, from a different a definition that uh, steps outside of what I'd see as a capitalocentric kind of analysis of commons and do what they're asking for, even if they don't necessarily do it, which start to look at the commons uh, as part of a different kind of trajectory. And here, the way we've done it is to start with the idea of a commons um, that comes out of uh, particularly the work of Stephen Guterman, an economic anthropologist, but it really resonates with a lot of other ways of thinking about the commons, as, such as Maria Mies's work and others, where um, Stephen says a commons is what a community makes and shares to ensure its survival. So you can't have a commons without a community, you can't have a community without a commons. So what we're talking about here is a set of practices. Um, People often tend to focus on the thing, and clearly we can talk about different kinds of commons, biophysical commons, cultural commons, social commons, and knowledge commons. But here that's focused on the casual kind of the thing. And really what I'd like to do is focus on the practice, the commoning as a practice. So to be a commons, something has to access to that property, needs to be shared and wide, Use of it needs to be negotiated by a community. Benefit needs to be distributed to a community and possibly beyond that community of carers. Um, care needs to be performed by community members. And responsibility for property needs to be assumed by community members. So for us, a commons, the practice of commoning, is to actually do that work of sharing access, negotiating use, benefiting and spreading benefit, caring and taking responsibility. So the question of who owns a common for us is open. <coughs> ownership of, of property um, I'll just put that. Ownership of property is largely a legal matter and needn't deter land or other resources from being accessed and managed as a commons. So here we're shifting to the idea of seeing property as a relationship between people with respect to things. And if we take that view that property is a relationship between people with respect to things, then all forms of property can potentially be common. So commons can be created with any type of property, with private property that might be owned by an individual owner, a family, a corporation or a collective. Uh, it, it could be created with state-owned property or it could be created with open access property. Whereas I think a lot of people, you know, focusing on property, um, rather when they... Okay, so this is when property is seen as a relationship between things with respect, people with respect to things, all form of property can be common. If we, um, if we, if we focus on the ownership aspect, I think I'm just going to go to this. 
there's often been a conflation that private property was associated with capitalism, state-owned property was associated with socialism, and common property was associated with primitive and future forms of communism. So commoning was this last one. Um, and what I'm arguing is we can have forms of commoning practice associated with many different kinds of uh, property forms, legal forms. Um, and this was a this is really the, the 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 sort of the bum steer we got from Gareth Hardin in, when he started writing about the tragedy of the commons. That suddenly, you know, the only way to really look after things was to have private property. Otherwise, uh, there would be this huge tragedy of overuse. But it wasn't until 20 years later he actually recanted and said the weightiest mistake in my synthesising paper, which got so much press, uh, was the omission of the modifying adjective unmanaged. So what he was really talking about was an unmanaged commons, a commons where people didn't have rules of use, didn't negotiate access, didn't share benefit. You know, and, so, and of course, Ostrom's work is to show that over centuries people have done that and done it in lots of different ways. Um, but it's interesting how his recanting doesn't get a lot of press, but the, still we keep hearing the tragedy of the commons, the tragedy of the commons. So really our thinking has been a way of trying to get out of this kind of... Um, this, this kind of, uh, I don't know, dead end, I think, where property um, starts to assume more of a relationship than the kind of practices that we uh, are focusing on as how a community makes and shares that which it needs to survive. And so in our, in our book, we, ident we, we produce this sort of commons identity kit where we can think about the, the practices of access, use, benefit, care, responsibility, and the association with profit can, uh, property can be open. So um, one of the things we do in the book is, de is develop a little kind of what's called a time property geography. And we could easily do this for ourselves, is try and track the different kinds of property relationships we move through over the day or 24-hour clock and then start to analyse which of those property forms is actually common. Where, where, which, which of these places do we, are we part of a community that's making and sharing? Um, and this is just an example of... Um, a coal miner and his wife. I did a lot of work years ago in um, the coal mining regions of central Queensland where, you know, time was being changed dramatically by new rosters and so on and uh, seven-day rosters were being brought in just before 12-hour shifts and they were called the divorce roster because of the way in which family time and work time were so out of sync. But I'm just using the example of people that I knew there to think about the ways in which um, Bill, who's the purple line, um, you know, wakes up in his company-owned house, goes off by state-owned property on the road down to the coal mine, um, again, privately owned, heads back after work to the football club, which is a collectively owned private property. He's part of the association that runs the club, spends some time there and then goes home. And his wife, who is a nurse at the state-owned property, works the night shift, so she's working at the night in the ho at the hospital, comes home, um, takes the kids to school, which is, again, another state-owned property, goes off to the community centre for a while, does a bit of work on the World Wide Web, open access, um, meets up at the football club before she goes home and then goes back to work. So we can, either, we can do this kind of thing for ourselves, just try and figure out where do we go, what do we do, and then start to interrogate where is a commons? Where am I part of uh, something that could be seen as a commons? And when we look at that kind of um, that family, uh, the places that we could see a kind of commons operating were the primary school, the football club, the community centre and Wikipedia. And 
Here we're trying to just map out who it is that we're part of, the, who is this community that was making and sharing something. Um, certainly in Australia, I think many primary schools act as a commons. Parents and teachers and community members all care for the pro property, the, the gardens, the kitchen gardens often that are run. Um, there's a sense of, even though it's state-owned state and a state public system, there's a sense of ownership and care that is often performed by, by family members and, and in, around primary schools, which is very different from what happens when kids go to high school, where often that relationship with the education system is attenuated and people don't have a sense that it's a commons. Um, the football club is clearly run by an association where people all put in their labour to help at work. Um, uh, and the community centre, again, a state-owned property, but uh, something where community members are acting in all these roles. And to some extent, Wikipedia is a, uh, an open access uh, property, but again, there are certain ways in which users uh, take responsibility, uh, volunteer their care and so on. So you can start to use this identity kit to start to locate where it is that you're participating in a commons in your daily life. And again, that same kind of identity kit can be used to look at different ways of commoning, whether it's um, commoning enclosed property, creating new commons, or commoning unmanaged open access uh, property. So here we just, um, again, the ownership is, uh, is not crucial so much as the practices that of taking responsibility. Say when it's commoning an unmanaged open access resource, it's actually taking responsibility, assuming responsibility. Um, not the benefit isn't just for whoever finds it and keeps it, but as a benefit that will be distributed to a community. Um, the, uh, the, the use of the open access um, resource needs to be negotiated and, and started to be regulated and so on. So this kind of um, identity kit can be used to identify strategies. Um, and it can also be used to identify uncommoning strategies, strategies whereby commons are being undermined and taken back. <laughs> this was a wonderful... Um, <laughs> we had this wonderful uh, exhibition called Sculptures by the Sea every year in Sydney. And um, this was one, one of the uh, exhibits a few years ago. <laughs> so the other thing that we've done with thinking about commons is to um, start to ask, can we start to record our relationships to commons over a longer time period? And here I'm thinking I'm getting back to the question of what is the history, the historical trajectory of commoning and uncommoning. And we use this idea of a commons yardstick. Um, can we start to put our practices of commoning in a context that places our present in the kind of temporal context that climate change, I think, asks us to consider. So um, here we're doing it in terms of generations. And many of us can, I think, remember our grandparents and the kind of stories that they might have told about their life and that of even their parents. So maybe back into the great, your great-grandparents. Most of us can, I, can I kind of remember back or feel like we have some connection back three generations. But can we try and imagine forward? Can we start to think not just three generations, but even seven generations, just as many indigenous communities in the world um, asks us, ask us to do? So this um, yardstick is really just a way of starting to locate 
moments of commoning and uncommoning and start to debate, you know, how long-lasting um, and uh, what we might need to do in order to start to common, uh, common crucial aspects of our world in new ways. So, um, yeah, if we, if we take this generation to be 25 years, we can locate commoning and uncommoning activities in the past, the present and the future. And perhaps this might help us see more clearly what kinds of ethical actions we need to take when it comes to making and sharing a commons that, that ensures survival. So if we look, for instance, at our atmospheric commons, at the huge unmanaged resource called our atmosphere, we can actually see moments in which there's been attempts to start to common it. Um, you know, we've known, for instance, that um, for um, many years that... I think this is the... Is this the Ozone commons, yeah. For many years there, there was the development of CFCs, you know, in use in industrial technologies, of refrigeration and so on. Um, and it was clear by about the 1930s that there was something wrong, that this was having some impact. Um, but it's only been recently that we've started to organise as a, a sort of a world community to try and make a difference um, in terms of our atmosphere. And of course, the big challenge at the moment is, uh, climate, is greenhouse gas emissions. And we've, we've still got a lot of work to do to start to act as a commoning community around that. Um, and it, but I think there's some of the um, lessons we have from the past give us a bit of hope that that is possible. Um, and just briefly, you know, it, it, this is a picture of 1953 before. Um, the Clean Air Act was, start, was uh, initiated in London and it was a, that kind of interest in seeing the, the atmosphere as something that needed to be cleaned up and taken care of really started to happen in this time and, and many countries of the world started to introduce what were called Clean Air Acts which were largely around particulate matters in, in, the, um, in, the, um, in the atmosphere. So the, in, the, in the UK they were introduced in the 1950s, in Australia in the 1960s and it was a kind of something where, I guess, a global community, start, a global concern started to be articulated around the need to do such a thing. Um, the ozone layer has taken a, a different kind of trajectory where, um, yes, the, the, the notion that there might be some problem um, started to be noticed in the, um, back in the 30s and then the ozone hole was noticed and scientifically just, um, kind of documented at a certain time. And then the uh, negotiations towards the Montreal Protocol were taken. But it's taken and um, took a number of years for everybody to sign up for that. And, and there was a whole way in which uh, um, developing countries were seen as having a, a lagging, uh, had a different time frame than developed countries. But it's clearly going to be not for another 70 years or more till that, that ozone hole will actually supposedly cl uh, close up. So here's, here's a kind of one way of starting to think about one resource, an unmanaged access resource, that is starting to be managed in new ways. It's a, one kind of history uh, of a commoning practice, which is um, not the sort of ones that is happening in a, in a local community, although actions in local communities are going to feed into this kind of process, particularly when it comes to global warming. So, um, yeah, I think the, these two techniques, the kind of identity kit and the... The yardstick are two just ways of starting to think about our interdependence um, and open up the issues of what kind of practices we could be involved in in different realms of our life um, to um, start to 
think about and relate to property in new ways and relate to each other in, in other in new ways. Because I think many of the concerns of a community economy are forms of commoning as well. It's not just about property. But just lastly, I've probably hopefully not gone too much over time, I just wanted to introduce this kind of other uh, development of our commons identity kit, a commons sensor, and hopefully invite members of CASCO to um, help use it. It's just an attempt to use and to develop an app that helps us, um, this is actually us, that green thing, this, this is the map of Utrecht, um, to actually start to identify sites where you could um, think about who has access, um, who uses it, who benefits from it, who takes care, who takes responsibility, and then how is it owned? And start to populate our world with these moments, these spaces, and start to show the, the, the extent to which we are already part of commoning communities um, but are, that are invisible, that we need to make more visible. And this is just one little... Um, little technique and perhaps it be, could be developed further in all sorts of ways and I'd, I'd like to invite people in Casco to help the Community Economies Collective to develop this technique um, uh, and see where we go with it. So um, I'll end there and I'll just direct you to the Community Economies website if, no one, if anyone's interested in seeing more of the work. A collective is about 30 people. We have a research network of about 130 people who are interested in multiple ways of thinking about and working to enact um, different kinds of economy. So, thank you. So, uh, thank you very much, Katrin. Thank you so much. Like, I'm always so impressed by the lucidity and kind of horizon or possibility that you offer. <laughs>